Jonas, for the uh, scripture reading this evening. And uh, yeah, if we didn't uh, get it from the nativity play that we just witnessed there, thanks guys, that was really encouraging. Um, I think you'll be able to see from the uh, candle that's lit here in front of me on the left-hand side, the first of four candles that we are here, here we are, um, at the first Advent Sunday. We're in this Advent time of the year. Uh, last week, um, if you were here in the morning, because we had combined service last Sunday where we had a baptism and took communion in the morning and celebrating the kingship of Christ before our worship night here in the evening last Sunday, um, you'll know that I invited you to take this last week um, intentionally to be part of the week of prayer and fasting here. And so I hope that that was for you a, a time of uh, yeah, blessing, whether you were here in, uh, present here in the, the sanctuary or um, with us in spirit maybe in your flat share or your family. Um, I encouraged us to take this last week intentionally, saying last Sunday it's not yet Advent, um, but Advent is coming, Christmas is coming, and well, here we are. As I say, the, the candle is burning. And um, for those of you who think, yeah, we love the Advent um, wreath here or the Advent candles, but we're missing something, I can promise you there is a tree coming. So the tree will be here. It's coming. I can see there's great excitement here for trees, Christmas trees. There's less excitement here than there was this morning. When I said that this morning, everyone was like, "Woo!" Not so much. Not, not so, you know, I will leave that there. Anyway, thanks to those who, who um, made this last week special, um, putting together the prayer and the worship, um, starting with the worship night here last Sunday evening. Well, as I said, we're in Advent, and Advent, of course, is a, a time of anticipation. It's a time of expectation. We are in a period where we are preparing for the Advent. Advent, of course, the Latin word meaning arrival or coming. We're preparing for the arrival of Christ. Christ, of course, came the first time sent by his Father. He entered into our world in Bethlehem. We just saw it acted out for us. Born of the Virgin Mary. He was marveled at by the shepherds who came and worshipped and venerated by the Magi, the wise men from the east. That's the first advent, if you will. But also, every year in this season of the Christian year, we are given the opportunity to welcome Christ anew, to, that he might be born again in our hearts, as it were, on Christmas. Just as it was back in days of old with our spiritual forerunners in, in Israel, we look to Christ's coming with expectation. We know that he is the Messiah, that he did at his first coming establish his kingdom. You remember that from the Gospels. The kingdom of God is near. And that from that time, this kingdom has grown, has continued to grow through the ongoing power and working of his Holy Spirit. And this kingdom will continue in that growth until that day on which Jesus Christ comes at his second advent in glory, that is the return of Christ, which we looked at here two weeks ago. So in Advent, we connect all three of these comings of Jesus Christ, his birth, his first advent in Bethlehem, his coming anew into our hearts as we receive him, and his second advent, his return at the last judgment, at the last day. And so my invitation or my call on us as Calvary Chapel Freiburg here at this evening congregation is that we would 
Um, wake up. We heard that in the last part of the text that Jonas read for us in uh, verse uh, 9 there of um, Isaiah 51, that we want to awake, we want to arise from our sleep. We're late in the year. This year has been long. This year is now old. We can tell from the length of the days. The days are getting shorter. The darkness is getting longer. It's the month of December. Maybe you're feeling tired as we look back on the year that has been. It's, it's funny to think that we're coming up to New Year's again, and maybe you can remember the resolutions you made or the plans you had for this year, and now we've been long in this year, and perhaps you're tired, perhaps you're discouraged, perhaps you've had things that have been hard to deal with this year, maybe losses, um, sadness, mourning, whatever it might have been. Of course, there have been great things this year also, but this is the kind of time in the year where we've been long in the year, and therefore we maybe need that encouragement to arise, to wake up from our sleep, and to look forward to, to anticipate, to expect the coming of our Lord with joy and with hope. Because the, the coming of Christ, if we think about it this way, the coming of Christ is that which should fulfill all our hopes and desires as Christians. And not only that, as Christians, we know that it's the coming of Christ that gives the world what the world truly needs. The world truly needs Christ. That is our firm conviction as Christians. That is why we believe what we believe. Advent, therefore, is a time, and uh, again, Advent is a time where we can grow in our own desire for the return of Christ, in our own hope in our own expectation of the fulfillment of God's promises. I want, let me give you that idea that it's not the case that our, our hopes or our desires of our hearts or our yearnings, our expectations are just given the way they are and we have to accept things the way they are and there's naught that we can do about it or that we have to hope that from externally God might miraculously change us. Rather, just as we can be shaping the physical strength and of our bodies, our endurance, our physical strength, we can be shaping, we should be shaping our, our loves, our expectations, our hopes, what our, where our hearts are directed towards. And that's what we want to do. This is a chance, this season, this series that we're entering today is an opportunity and therefore my invitation to you, take up that opportunity that we might grow together in shaping and, 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 and sharpening our, our, our focus, our, our yearning, our hope, our expectation towards the fulfillment of God's promises in Christ, which are ultimately the, the revelation, the manifestation, the making visible of the kingly reign of Jesus Christ in all glory, and that, of course, will come on the day of his return. Jesus speaks in Revelation 22 and verse 20. He says, see, I am coming soon. And therefore, we should be, indeed, we must be ready to receive him. And so to help us, to help us this year with that, to help us sharpen our focus, shape our hopes and our yearnings, we're going to take the four classic motifs, you could say, of the Advent Sundays. They are hope, peace, joy, and love. Hope, peace, joy, and love, although you knew that if you saw the um, poster as you came in this evening. And so that means that tonight, being first Advent Sunday, we take hope. And of course, hope, if 
you have any uh, great experience um, being a Christian over many years, you'll know that hope is that motif that is usually taken on the first Advent Sunday. And so this evening I want to speak from our text, from Isaiah 51 and those first 11 verses, I want to speak to us, to you, about hope. But before we dive into the text, I think, if, if we just think for a moment, hope, is this just some... Um, is this some sort of religious, uh, spiritual thing that we maybe need to direct the spiritual portion of our lives towards for this evening, listen to this message from Sam, and then we can get on with the rest of our lives? I don't think so, and I hope not, because I think if we look out at our world around us, if we look out at this uh, country that we have been called to live in at this time here in Germany, if we look at the church, then it's not an unimportant thing for us as Christians um, in Germany, in this time, that we focus on hope. You see, our world, our society, our, our media, certainly, our politics here in this place, but not only here in Germany, um, offers us no shortage of opportunities to sink into cynicism, uh, sarcasm, uh, negativity. It is very easy to fall into despair or hopelessness in times like this. There's a general sense, certainly in this country, that things are not going well, things are not looking up, there's a great uncertainty about the future, there's a sense of resignation and hopelessness with the governing powers. This is a time, this is a place where hope is needed. We live in a country, we live in a world, we live in a time where hope is needed. And Advent, this is where we all come in. Advent reminds us as Christians why we are the people, we sang it before, who have a living hope. That's what Peter writes in his first letter. He says that if you are in Christ, you have a living, you've been born again into a living hope. Advent reminds us we are the people of a living hope and we know in whom we have placed our hope. And so therefore, we of all people should be hopeful. So with that um, said, let's um, open up our text now and uh, look at a couple of things with each other uh, this evening. So if you've got your Bibles there, as I say, open up to Isaiah uh, 51. We'll basically be in Isaiah and I'll reference a few other verses, but I'll give you fair warning. Let me start by asking the question, as Christians, what is our hope? What is our hope? And to help us answer that question, let me read for you again the verse 3 from our text. There we read these words, The Lord, the Lord God, will surely comfort Zion and will look with compassion on all her ruins. He will make her deserts like Eden, her wastelands like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the sound of singing." If I was to answer the question, what is our hope as Christians, then I would say something along these lines. Our hope is nothing less than that through Jesus Christ, salvation, restoration, and life be given to the whole world. I'll say that again, that our hope as Christians is nothing less than that through Jesus Christ, salvation, restoration, and life be given to the whole world. And this verse three gives us a picture, an image of what that might look like. 
particularly here at Zion. Zion, of course, the place where God dwells, the place of his presence, and therefore associated often in the Bible with Jerusalem in particular or Israel uh, in general. This is, the, this is the place of God's presence. And yet even here in, at the time that the prophet Isaiah was given this message, um, Jerusalem was a desolate place. The picture here is one of wastelands of desert. And yet there's a transformation that is prophesied and promised in this verse. It is a transformation of wastelands into the garden of the Lord. Of that the ruins would be removed and that something new would come in their place. This is, a, this is a place that is characterized there at the end of verse three as a place of joy and a place of gladness, a place that prompts almost automatically thanksgiving. This is the kind of place where you're in that place and you feel like, I'm thankful. I don't have to think twice about it, I'm thankful. It's a place where you're not surprised to hear the sound of singing. This verse does not describe any situation in the history of Israel. For example, you might think Isaiah, a long time ago, he was prophesying around the time that the people entered into captivity in Babylon. Perhaps he's looking forward to a time where the people of Israel came back from from Babylon and returned to the land, and and this is God's restoration in that time. But that's, that's not the case. One commentator puts it this way, he says, this is not the situation in Zion after the return from the exile in Babylon. This is something much larger, much greater, much grander, much more beautiful at the end of the age. Okay, so what are we hearing here? This this verse here, verse three, and as part of these verses that we're looking at all together tonight, this evening, These verses assure us by giving us a promise that this old world, and when we think about the old world, or when I say the old world, I don't just mean back then maybe the ruins or the wastelands of the Holy Land, 600 or 700 BC. I'm talking about our lives here and now. Again, we've been long in this year. It's getting, the days are short. It's getting cold. It's dark. That brings out this this aspect that we are living in a world that is full of problems, that is full of suffering, that is full of uh, curses, that is full of um, tears. And these verses are giving us a sure promise. The Lord will surely comfort Zion. He will look with compassion. He will transform He will transform this old world into a new world, which is characterized by life, by joy, a place of gladness, a place of thanksgiving and of singing. But you know, it's not just a promise for sort of the externals, the the surroundings, the environment, uh, the land. This is a promise that is for people. Look back at verse two. Or we could even start in the second half of verse 1. There we read God's call to his people to to listen and to look. God wants to show us something. God wants us to be aware. God wants us to see and perceive something. And he says this. This is verse 1 of Isaiah 51, the second part. He says, look, look to the rock from which you were cut and to the quarry from which you were hewn. We see the interpretation of 
this rock and this quarry in the very next verse. The rock is Abraham and the quarry is Sarah. And so God repeats this invitation in verse two. Look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who gave you birth. When I called him, he was only one man and I blessed him and I made him many. God is challenging us here. God is calling us. Look at Abraham and Sarah. Consider them. Remember their situation. This is not so much the personal uh, level of, of Abraham's faith or, or Sarah's trusting in God, so much as how God acted in Abraham and in Sarah's life and what he brought forth from them. Because it's about having hope for the future. You see, what God says here to the people who received Isaiah's prophecy at that time, but he's saying it to us here, right here tonight, is remember that when I called Abraham and Sarah, Abraham was just one man. Abraham was just a single man. And yet it was my plan, says God, to bless him and to make him into a great nation. That's Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3. And in the, what is implied here is God is saying, I did that. I made him into a great nation. But it's not just to say, because from Abraham and from Sarah came the entire kingdom and nation of Israel. But it's not just to say, look, that's, those were past glories. You know, look back at the good old days. The implication is to say that this is how God is still working today that this is how God is still working today. This is still his plan that through Abraham, though he started out as one man, that through him and through Sarah, all nations, all generations of the earth should be blessed. Until that day where the vision that is given to the apostle John in Revelation is fulfilled. You can turn with me if you like to Revelation chapter seven. Revelation seven. And from verse 9, Revelation 7 and from verse 9, John reads there, or sorry, John says there, after this I looked and there before me, and listen to what he says here, there before me was a great multitude, many people, how great that no one could count, countless, huge, and this multitude was from every nation, every tribe, every people, and every language. And they were standing before the throne and before the Lamb, that is, Jesus Christ. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so the sense here is, we might be thinking, if we look around us in our time and at this place, we might be thinking, hey, there's so few of us. We're so small, we're so insignificant. Over against all of those in this world who don't yet know Christ or who are even turning their back on him, maybe you've experienced that on a personal level this year, being disappointed, being saddened. We could, be, we, could, we could fall into hopelessness, we could fall into despair. And God is speaking in this text to us, he's giving us a reminder and a promise saying, look, remember Abraham and Sarah, he was one man when I called him, and yet I promised him that I would turn him into a, 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 a great nation, that through him all the nations of the world should be blessed. And therefore our hope needs to be the fulfillment of that in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9, that we look 
forward to the day when we will stand as part of that great multitude, a multitude that no one can count, coming from all nations, tribes, peoples, and languages. That salvation is from our God. That God is in the business of saving this world. So that's, the, that's sort of the global vision of God's salvation that God is seeking here to encourage, to give hope to us, his people, through this prophet Isaiah. But it becomes concrete in the next section of our text. If you turn with me here to verse 4, this is where our, the hope, hope is realized because verses 4 and 5 speak about the advent, the coming, the first advent of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. In these verses four and five, God announces his plan of salvation, not only for his own people, but for all nations of the world. And this plan of salvation will come to pass through his servant. We'll look at that in a moment's time. So God has encouraged us, look, Look at um, Abraham, look at Sarah. God will surely comfort Zion. God will transform this old world into a new world without pain, suffering, or tears. And now, this is where this hope um, is realized in the first coming of Christ. Let me read for you verse four. Listen to me, my people, God says, again, hear that all through our text tonight, God is speaking to us, his people, and he wants us to pay attention, to listen, to hear. This is, this is instruction, this is message that we need to pay attention to, to take on board. Listen to me, my people. Hear me, my nation. Instruction will go out from me. My justice will become a light to the nations. God will cause his law, we could translate that word, or instruction, both are correct. God will cause his law, his instruction, to go out. And by go out, we get the context from the very next line. That is to go out to the nations as a light to the nations. And all of the nations will hear and perceive it. God's justice will be a light unto the nations so that they no longer walk in the darkness of their own understanding. Now if we flip back a few chapters in Isaiah to Isaiah chapter 42, Isaiah 42, and you can go there now uh, with me, to the first four verses, Isaiah chapter 42 makes, makes something very clear. This mission, this um, this ministry to take the word of God, the law of God as a light to all the nations. This is the commission given to the servant of Yahweh, the servant of God. The servant is a figure in the prophet Isaiah. We would know um, this perhaps most clearly from Isaiah 53, a text that we read most years somewhere around Good Friday, the suffering servant. The servant is a figure um, in Isaiah um, whose fulfillment is found in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so let me read to you what God says to the servant, that is, to Jesus Christ and about him in these first verses of Isaiah 42. We read these words, here is my servant, 
whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. Think about the baptism of Jesus. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. There it is. It's Jesus, it's the servant in the power of the spirit who will bring justice to the nations. He won't shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching the islands will put their hope. Or again, just down in verse 6 of Isaiah 42, we hear the, the, the words of God to the servant himself, saying, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand, I will keep you, and I will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. So again, here in Isaiah 42, we are hearing about the ministry or the commission of the servant, Jesus Christ. And this should encourage and, and awaken our hope because here is the promise back in Isaiah 51 that this will be fulfilled. This is Isaiah 51 and verse 4. There will be opposition. We read about that in Isaiah also. We read about that in the Gospels. We know that that is the case. And yet, in spite of all the opposition against Christ and against his kingdom, this is a firm promise. This will take place. That's what verse 4 is saying. Listen to me, my people. This instruction, it will go out. My justice will become a light to the nations, and this will be fulfilled through the servant Jesus Christ. You might be very few, you might be old, you might be tired, you might be discouraged, like Abraham and Sarah, and yet I will make you into a great multitude that no one can count. And verse five makes it even more clear. Let's read verse five together. There, we read these words, Again, spoken by God, my righteousness draws near speedily. My salvation is on the way and my arm will bring justice to the nations. The islands, there they are again, reminding us of Isaiah 42. The islands will look to me and wait in hope for my arm. If I had to sum this up, it would be something like this. Israel and all of the nations will be transformed by Jesus Christ and by the message he brings, the word, the instruction, the law that he brings from God, the justice that he brings. In verse four, we saw that it was the instruction or that the law of God that was going out. Now it is salvation that is on the way. I don't think it's helpful to, um, to separate these. I think these are, this is the same thing. And as it says here, uh, in verse 4, depending on your translation, might, you might have something like uh, in verse 4 that God will, will uh, judge uh, the nations. 
But this is not talking about the judgment at the last day, the, the last judgment. This is talking about God will judge justly. God will bring his justice. God will bring, will bring just rule to the nations that will cause life and flourishing. God will rule justly. In other words, the righteous um, king, the righteous kingly rule of Jesus Christ will spread and bring with it salvation and rescue. And all the nations, all the nations will place their trust in Christ and come to God. All the nations, as this kingly rule of Jesus Christ spreads, all the nations will place their trust in Christ and come to God. That's the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 2 and verses 2 um, through 4, but it's also in our text here because it says here, even the islands, here in the second half of verse 5, even the islands will look to me and wait in hope for my arm. The islands, these are the small nations. These are the nations that are often forgotten. I don't know if you've ever been to an island nation. Maybe you've been to Mauritius or the Seychelles or the Maldives or what have we got? Barbados, Malta. Um, these are the islands. These are not the countries which are listed in the first rank of the great powers of the world. The idea is that these are far away. These are at the sort of the, the, the margins of the world, both geographically and, in term, and, and politically in terms of their influence. The, the idea is not that Jesus' rule or, or, or Jesus um, taking justice and the law of God will stop at the larger nations and sort of be hemmed in, but rather it will go to the very ends, ends of the earth, to all the nations. The islands, those far away from Israel, they, even they, will look to me, says God, and wait in hope for my arm. And it's interesting what it says there. They, they will look to me and wait in hope for my arm. It's not the case that this is a judgment in the sense of these islands are sort of trembling and waiting for the judgment of God to fall upon them and destroy them. No, they are waiting here with hope for God. This word hope that's used in the text it's a word that describes an eager looking forward with expectation, being a hopefulness, a, a being ready for God to intervene, to do something, to intervene in, uh, in history. It is an active, um, hopeful waiting, um, a waiting for God's arm, his arm being a, a picture of his, his strength. These are islands, these are nations that are waiting. They desire to be under the kingly rule of Jesus. They recognize that, his, that Jesus' justice, his good rule is, is good. It is what brings flourishing and life. And that's why I say the promise here is not that these nations will all be judged and destroyed and cast down. Rather, the promise that is being given to us here in Isaiah 51 is that even the furthest islands, they will look forward to the kingly rule of Jesus. They will place their trust in him. So what do we say at this point? Because, you know, we're right in the middle of that period now. We're in the middle of where this is taking place. Jesus has come at his first advent. And I can say a couple of things. I can say firstly that this promise 
And this is not the only time this is promised in the Bible. We see that throughout the scriptures, even going back to verses that I already quoted to you earlier, such as Genesis 12 and the call of Abraham, that through you, Abraham, all the generations of the earth will be blessed. This, this promise, this hope, is the motivation and the drive that again and again, even from our midst in this church and this congregation, brothers and sisters are called by the Holy Spirit and sent out to go to the nations because the promise is there, all of the nations, or, or so the promise is there that the word from Christ, his justice, his righteousness will spread to all the nations. But what do we experience? We experience at this time in history that in some places, in some places, it's, it's very hard going. That it seems that the, the gospel only proceeds at a slow pace. That every individual who comes, who comes to faith, that it's, a, it's, it's effort and it's, it's not easy and it's hard going. And yet, in other places, we experience and we hear of the, the gospel spreading quickly like a wildfire as thousands and thousands come to faith in Christ. This is a mystery of this time that we can't fully understand. But our sure hope, this is important for us, our sure hope is not ultimately in the external um, circumstances that we see around us. Our hope is in the sure word of God. Jesus himself put it this way. In Matthew 24 and verse 14 he said, this gospel of the kingdom will be announced in all the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. That was a sure word and promise that Jesus gave. And I don't know how it is for you, but I was looking at some statistics uh, the other day because oftentimes we might be discouraged. We live in a place, as I said at the beginning, that is in need of hope. But certainly as we look at the statistics from around the world, we can see that the Christian church grew more last century than in, en than in all previous centuries put together. And so again, while we might be at times discouraged at how difficult it can be here in Europe or in Germany, we should again not let our, let, let our hope turn to despair at the situation here, but we should place our trust in the promise that through Jesus Christ, God is reconciling to himself all things. If we continue into verse 6 now, we've seen the this, the first advent of Christ, that as the servant, he is the one tasked with taking the law and the instruction and justice and being a light to the nations. And that that began at his first advent as he was born in Bethlehem by the Virgin Mary. If we move on to verse six, just briefly, verse six gives us a picture of the future, a picture of the day of the Lord, of the return of Christ and the day of the last judgment. And basically what we, can, what we gather from verse 6 is to say that the, the fate of life without Christ is to disappear, is to fall away. But over and against this is the fact that the salvation and the righteousness, the justice of God's rule in Christ is everlasting and will never fail. So... One commentator writes this about these promises, about the first and second advent of Christ that are given to us in verses four to six, referencing that spreading um, rule and authority, the spreading of salvation in Christ 
and the assurance that this salvation will be everlasting and will never fail. This commentator writes this, quote, these promises give every believer a solid foundation for their faith in God. They can live in hope as they face the future, even though the events of life may be difficult and appear quite hopeless. Assurance based on promises of God's salvation are really the only worthwhile hope in this world. And again, this is, as, as, as we've seen from the text, God is calling us to fix our hope in his promises, in his salvation plan, that we should be, be that, that as we are changed to see his salvation plan, as we are changed to trust it, as we are changed to take, to have hope in it, that will change the way we live, the way we think, the way we act, even here and even now, as we are used by God as salt and light in this place at this time. And that's why these calls are there over and over again. Look, listen, hear me, pay attention to what I am saying, says the Lord. You know, I said at the beginning we connect all three comings of Christ and Advent, his birth and Bethlehem, his return at the last day, and of course his being born again in our hearts. And so it is that here in verse 7 we read these words, Hear me, you who know what is right, you people who have taken my instruction to heart. Hear me, you who know what is right, you people who have taken my instruction to heart. God is calling on us who know his righteousness, who know what is right, who know his justice, who carry his law in our hearts. And if we think about what we heard a few moments ago, it is the servant, Jesus Christ, who is the one who carries the law and the instruction and the righteousness and the justice of God to be a light to all nations, to the very ends of the earth, to even the distant islands. And so in a sense, if we are those who know what is right, who have his, his justice and righteousness, and who carry his law, his word of instruction in our hearts, then in a sense we, we have Jesus in our hearts because Jesus is the one who brings those things, the justice, the righteousness, the law, the instructions. And so we want to carry, we want to receive Jesus in our hearts. We want to be those who have taken this to heart. And if we think about that phrase for a moment, what does it mean to take it to heart or to have received Christ in our hearts, to have taken him into our heart. I think it would certainly mean that we have internalized Jesus' wisdom, Jesus' truth. We would surely have to say that this is more than just a mental awareness of God's existence or Jesus' existence or that in some sense God has a law or a word that is going out but rather, we are talking here about um, having received um, the wisdom, the instruction, the truth of God in Christ as the measure for our life and for our faith, as the guide to our, to our behavior and to our moral beliefs. And this means that we understand that the law of God 
is much more than a collection of rules. In fact, I think if we think that God's law, that the word that Christ gives us is ultimately a rather arbitrary and burdensome list of rules, then we haven't really understood. One commentator puts it like this. He says, instead, we should understand that this word that Christ, this word of instruction and law that Christ brings is, quote, fundamentally a revelation of the power and authority of God over creation, over this world and its history. It is his promise that he will fulfill his plan of salvation. It is his explanation of how we live in a personal relationship to God and how we can stand in this relationship as a member of his covenant people. And so this commentator goes on to say that those who have taken Christ into their hearts are those who have rejected the worldview of the day and have completely accepted and received God's perspective on life and the future. He says, a heart acknowledgement of these things implies a commitment to God, not just an awareness of a set of rules. And that this kind of devotion to what God says to us in and through Christ implies a further, a personal relationship with God through Jesus. A relationship that is the basis for a knowledge and experience of God's presence in the Holy Spirit and an expectation of his working both now and with hope for the future." End quote. And so friends, uh, this is for us. This word is for us. I certainly I can speak for me. I don't know how this year has been for you. I think this is the kind of thing that you want to say every year. Um, and I hope that I can say this for you also. I want to receive, I want Christ to be born again in my heart this Advent. I'm not saying I want to be saved again. I am, we are saved if we are in Christ, but I want to receive him anew. I want to be refreshed by his reception. And therefore my invitation to you also is, let us, let us receive Christ anew in our hearts this Advent. What might that mean for you? This might mean for you as you hear these words and as you look at your life that you think, I really have to clean out my life. Um, I've, I've, I, I haven't been living in this hope. This is not what's characterized me. Maybe it means that you have to um, focus again on this reality, be, be anchored again in the certainty of this hope. The, where we're looking, what we're looking towards, that we are the people who have hope, that our hope is in Christ and that we know that Christ is bringing his salvation, bringing his restoration, bringing his life to all the world and that one day we will stand as part of that great multitude of every tribe, nation, tongue and people before the throne of God worshipping him, that that's where we're going, that's where we're heading, and that this is being worked out even now in our midst by the Holy Spirit at this place and will continue to do so in 2024. But it might also be for you as you hear these words that you think, you know, as you said that, I realize that I haven't received Christ in my heart at all, that I have been living as if it was a mere um, awareness of the existence of God or maybe the existence of his word, but to, to, have, to have received him in my heart, no. 
And therefore, you may be at the point where you have to come to the God of Abraham for the very first time through the comfort of Israel, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Because in each age and at every time, as people, we are called to make a choice, either to place our trust and confident hope in the everlasting salvation and rescue of God in Christ, or, and therefore to pursue righteousness, or not to trust God's promises, not to accept his instruction, not to receive his servant, Jesus Christ, but to reject him, and thereby to go without the hope of surviving the coming judgment of Jesus Christ. That is the choice that we all of us face and that all people face at all times. And so therefore, again, my appeal to us all, let us receive Jesus Christ and let us take him to heart, let us carry him in our hearts this Advent. And if we do so, as we draw to a close now, if we do so, we will be, as we read here in verse one of our text, we will be those who pursue righteousness and who seek the Lord. You know, Jesus is the one who brings God's righteousness, and so we want to pursue Jesus Christ. And we do that by thinking, by acting in, in ways that our Savior and Lord has revealed to us and has taught to us. We want to be those who seek the Lord, and I don't think that seek the Lord here means that God is a hidden God in some faraway place that we need to go on a long pilgrimage to find. But to seek the Lord here is describing that daily, that weekly resting in relationship of being connected with him. In prayer and silence for ourselves, in the corporate worship of the people of God here in the sanctuary, in the church, and then from this uh, community, our fellowship with those um, in whose midst God has placed each one of us. And each one of us here has been placed in the midst of a group of people. They might be your small group, your family, your friends, etc. That's what seeking the Lord is, remaining, resting in this relationship. And so I want to give us a couple of things for our souls um, this Advent. And here they are. I, I want to encourage us to be reading and reflecting on the Word of God. To read and reflect on the Word of God. And now this is a full time in the year. And so it may well be that you have to make a conscious decision that you're going to do this. You might have to say, well, in order to find the time to do this, I need to stop something else. I need to take something else out of my schedule. I'd encourage you if you're married, you have a family, or you're in a flat share, that you do this with somebody else. That you encourage each other to take this time. And the goal would not be to read masses of text in the Bible necessarily or to study it academically, but to let God's word speak to you in order to sharpen and shape and strengthen your hope according to the promises, for example, that we've received in Isaiah 51. Number two, prayer. Let me encourage you to take time for silent personal prayer before God. That's probably going to be best in the morning. But I don't just want to take time for sort of directionless prayer, pray whatever comes into your heart or whatever your mind comes into your mind. I want to give you two things for prayer 
this Advent season. Number one, um, take time, maybe it's two, three, four minutes of silent prayer in the mornings in order to awaken your longing for the second Advent, the return of Christ. When we say the Lord's Prayer, we say, your kingdom come. The question is, do we really mean it? Do we really long for this day, the day on which all pain and suffering and tears will be wiped away forever? Again, to shape our loves, to shape our longings, to shape our hopes, take the time to awaken in yourself um, intentionally a desire for the return of Christ. And thirdly, take time to pray for, whether it's one, two, three people by name, people whom you know who do not have hope in this time. As you look into the world, into our country, into wherever you might be, and you see these do not have hope in you. And pray not only for them, but pray that God would give you an opportunity this Advent to talk about the hope that is in Christ. Not the superficial hope that we sing of in so many of the the Christmas songs. Happy New Year. May all your troubles disappear. But truly the hope that is to be found only in Christ. And finally, let me encourage us. And I know that this is certainly something that I need to be doing. And as I said, my, as I said this morning, this is something that my, my, my uh, this is what I said this morning is that my wife would certainly agree with me on this one, is that we need to be tearing out cynicism, sarcasm, and negativity out of our hearts and out of our words. These things, cynicism, sarcasm, and negativity, they're not, they don't fit with us being those who have hope in Christ. We want to be paying attention to our words and our thoughts. And if you see or if you, you hear yourself saying something or, or you, hear yourself, you see yourself thinking something this Advent, which is going in that direction of being cynical, sarcastic and negative, that I would encourage you to say, no, I, I'm part of those who have true hope in Christ. I want to root that out. All right. When we do so, we are those who do not have to fear as it says in verse seven. Let me invite the worship team to come back up. I'm gonna sing again of our hope. The response to, of the people to this call by God that they would listen, that they would look at his work in the past, that they would hear his word, his sure promise for the future, their response is given to us in verse nine. They are awakened, they are encouraged, they are strengthened, and so they rise up, as I would encourage us also to do as the church in this time. And they say, Isaiah 51 verse nine, awake, awake, arm of the Lord. Clothe yourself with strength. Awake as in days gone by, as in generations of old. Was it not you who cut Rahab to pieces, that is, the monster in the sea, who pierced that monster through? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made a road in the depths of the sea so that the redeemed might cross over? In other words, awake God. Aren't you the God who has destroyed the enemy and provided salvation for your people? Then we are filled with hope and we desire that you would awake and manifest yourself and your power even in this time. It is what we confidently hope and fervently expect. And we also want to respond in the same way.
Let me say at that point, let me invite you to stand. We want to sing now, and I'll simply say, Amen.